0: The whole reason we're doing this is that we think there's sort of a lack of experimentation and a lack of bigger picture thinking or more ambition around what our computing interfaces can be. We had certain criteria, okay, it has to be fast, it has to be precise, but we also want it to be intimate and personal and emotive. But then when we go to bring it to the MVP that you're talking about, and then they go, wow, this is really weird. It just does not behave in any way that I expected." So there's lots of little choices like that that fit with the values, but in many cases were something that people found confusing because it doesn't work the way that other apps work, which is kind of the point. I'm Adam Wiggins. I'm a partner at Muse.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Adam Wiggins dreamed up the most powerful spatial canvas for your deep thinking. All this and more on Code Story. Adam Wiggins was from California originally, but has lived in Berlin for the last decade. Earlier in his life, he did Burning Man art installations and was a DJ. Now, as he says, he's a middle-aged family man, so he focuses on his family, his daughter, his adorable dog, and his career in software projects. His partner is also an immigrant, whom he met while in Berlin. Adam loves Berlin, and in fact, loves European cities in general for their focus on quality of life. He mentions that in the States, there's a large amount of economic freedom, but some inequality and more highs and lows to speak of. The culture in Berlin is full of history, culture, and a bohemian element, which is very attractive to music and to art. Adam is most well known for starting Heroku, which completely simplified the way developers think, interact, and use infrastructure. Post its acquisition by Salesforce, he found himself thinking about the future of computing and started a research lab called Ink and Switch. The area they landed on was computing interfaces and usage around screen touch. After a few prototypes, they landed on something that they thought was a solid combination of desktop precision with touchscreen mobility.
0: This is the creation story of Muse. As some backstory here, uh, I may be best known in the tech world for having started Heroku. Thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, very, very welcome. Uh, yeah, that was, again, something that um, my partners and I you know, wanted to see web app deployment be different. And we were very inspired by Ruby and and sort of the beauty and and focus on developer happiness and things like that. Um, And so you can see this theme in my career. I like creative tools. I like helping other people build things. And after Heroku, was in the enviable position that had some, a little bit of financial independence and uh, decided to, with some other folks, start a research lab to think about kind of what's next in computing, like not just what can we build today, but if we look forward five years, 10 years, what's what's really on the horizon? And did the research lab, uh, which is called Ink and Switch, uh, for a good four, four years or so. And we explored many paths of research, including end-user programming and local-first software, but one of the ones was around what does the next generation computing interface look like? So today, when we think of a computer, and particularly a computer for creative uses, we use a mouse, we use a keyboard, maybe something like a trackpad or a tablet, like a Wacom tablet or something, but really the interface we're using is not too different than what was invented at Xerox PARC 30 years ago and the question we were sort of asking ourselves was okay if we look forward 10 years from now is it still basically going to be the same sort of keyboard and mouse now 40 years in or is there something new and of course the big new change in computing interfaces is touch interfaces through phones and you have generations of people growing up with touch screens but of course phones and are just completely impractical for productive creative uses you wouldn't want to edit a spreadsheet even writing an email you know editing code there's some interesting things that people have, have done with that but the reality is the small screen the total lack of precision with your fingers it's just it's just not right for that and so we were kind of looking at this okay touch is this most notable advancement in computing interfaces and particularly one that a generation was growing up with but then it being so unsuited for more professional creative uses and then the desktop computer as being something that's kind of eh, kind of in maintenance mode hasn't been a lot of big advances in the you know windows linux mac world in pretty good while and so we said okay can those come together in some way and that led us to researching the tablet line of thinking and tablet and stylus interfaces and through a series of prototypes there we eventually settled on what we think could be an interesting blending of that desktop style, pro, precise, fast, powerful interface with touchscreens.
1: Tell me about the MVP. So that first product you built, how long did it take you to build? And what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life?
0: Because we started in the research lab, we maybe had a, a slightly different path here than you would in maybe, uh, or I have had in my commercial ventures in the past, which is we built a series of prototypes on basically all of the tablet platforms that existed. Uh, so that included Android, the Android tablets, Microsoft Surface tablets, which are, which are quite good in their own way, and then uh, the Chrome OS tablets. Uh, And in fact, the MVP for really the first kind of version, first prototype, uh, which you can read, we we wrote an essay about this called called Capstone, a tablet for thinking. And so we built the first version of Muse for Chrome OS. So using web technology and using a lot of the kind of tablet interface uh, API or like the stylus APIs that are part of Chrome OS. And one of the takeaways there was, while there was many ways that that the app worked really well, we found that the tablet platform ended up being sort of disappointing for us. And we ended up porting that over, or rather my now partner, Yulia, who's uh, one of the best iOS engineers that I know, uh, ended up porting over that uh, prototype to the iPad in about two weeks, and that sort of became our MVP.
1: But during that process, during the you know, the process of porting it over, or perhaps even before, there's probably a, a line, a blurry line there. But when you're building any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about what you're gonna start with, right? Or what sort of debt you're gonna take on. And tell me
0: about some of those decisions that you had to make and how you coped with them. Yeah, I think the biggest category of trade-offs and decisions we've had to make throughout this. Product, but especially in those early days, is doing weird experimental stuff, that is the research, and conforming to the status quo or what people expect. The whole reason we're doing this is that we think there's sort of a lack of experimentation and a lack of bigger picture thinking or more ambition around what our computing interfaces can be. And at the same time, if you come up with something weird and interesting that fulfills, you know, we had certain criteria, okay, it has to be fast, it has to be precise, but we also want it to be intimate and personal and emotive. And so we come up with a proto. you know, we'd iterate on a bunch of things, come up with features or interface elements that fulfilled that, and we'd even test them in usability tests and that sort of thing. But then when we go to bring it to, let's say, out of the lab to the MVP that you're talking about. Um, where someone can just sort of download it and try it, and then they go, wow, this is really weird. It just does not behave in any way the way that I expected." So to take a very simple example, one of our top values is performance, just everything has to be fast all the time. The iPad has 120 frames per second refresh on its screen and we wanted to basically keep up with that in contrast to I think a lot of productivity software that often has you waiting around and looking at spinners. One example of the interface where we wanted to make sure it was fast is that you wouldn't have to ever wait for something simple like so the muse is a kind of a spatial canvas where you move these cards around on a board and we didn't want you to have to put your finger down on the card wait a minute for it to kind of register that you want to drag it and then drag it which is the way that it usually works on touch screens instead we want it to be instantaneously you can kind of bring your finger in from the side in one sweeping motion you can even start moving it before you touch the card. You bring it down on the card and it starts moving with your finger instantaneously. No waiting. But that I mean actually means that we have to go completely off rails from, you know, we can't use any of the default Apple APIs because they all depend on some delay that you put your finger down. You keep it in one place. You wait for some period of time, some number of hundreds of milliseconds. There's a little animation as the thing lifts up and lets you know you're dragging it now. And now you can move it. So there's lots of little choices like that that fit with the values and what we were trying to do but actually put us either not able to just use the you know sort of the platform conventions but in many cases were something that people found confusing because it doesn't work the way that other apps work which is kind of the point
1: So okay from that point then so how did you progress the product and how do you how did you mature it and and to kind of wrap that, those questions in a box how did you build your roadmap and decide okay this is the
0: next most important thing to build we're trying to find the way that we can take the weird interesting things we're doing with the interface the researchy next generation elements but also kind of make them approachable and accessible to someone that just downloads the app and, and tries it out so a lot of that was a matter of You know, embracing the weirdness, but kind of deciding where here's a place where being different really makes a huge difference for the feel of the app or what you can do with it. And then we'll really double down on that. We'll make it really good. And then furthermore, find good ways to explain it. So we've actually spent, I would say, as much time on the explanatory materials, which includes that we have a a handbook, kind of a product manual with a bunch of videos. For example, we started a podcast. Uh, which originally was kind of just for fun, but we found that it really had a lot of value in the form of explaining all of our thinking and philosophies behind even the simplest of features. So, for example, our very first podcast episode was about tool switching and about why we built our own custom tool switcher rather than using the Apple default pencil kit. I think a lot of folks, when they first saw that or when they see the product On its own without that explanatory materials they go why are you doing it this weird way why not just use the apple default and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that but they can't be summarized in a couple of sentences so when me and my co-host mark can talk for 30 minutes 40 minutes an hour about all the philosophies, and I wasn't even thinking anyone would want to listen to this, but as it turned out, it made a huge difference where someone could try the product, think this is really weird, then they listen to the podcast a little bit, then some light bulbs turn on they try the product again, and that those two things pair together really well. So I think the progression of the product and the maturing of it is both this trying to find the places where we're weird, and that's really a benefit to the user make those things as good as we can, explain them really thoroughly through handbook, through podcast, through other forms. And then in some cases, there's weird ideas that we kind of liked in the lab, but maybe in the end, we end up kind of deleting or just kind of conforming more to the standards so that we can as much as possible be comprehensible while still having these things that, that make us unique.
1: I, I, maybe it's just the way that I think, but I I tend to applaud going outside of the OS standards. So when you were describing doing your own tool switcher, I got excited uh, <laughs> because I, I tend to I tend to like that. I tend to like that creativity and kind of building your own ecosystem into your app. There, I, I do have a question about the about the podcast. So I hear you saying it it, it helps explain the thinking um behind you know why you made some of the decisions that you made has it also helped in um or or has any sort of feedback surfaced to help you shape the product itself
0: yeah so our podcast which is titled Meta muse with the idea being it's kind of about it's not about muse it's about the team the company our process our thinking the behind the scenes stuff and absolutely it is a conversation Uh, First of all, we do have guests sometimes, which are sometimes Muse users or customers. Sometimes they're just people we like from the Tools for Thought community. Uh, But through that, we're we're having a literal conversation. and, And many times that gets us interesting feedback or perspective on some design choices we've made. We ask people to respond on Twitter with their thoughts. And we engage that way or write us on, you know, send us an email or something like that. Um, and so we do often get through our support channels as well, where someone says, hey, I'm using the app and I listened to the podcast about this episode, but I actually really disagree with you about this choice you've made here. And it's a much better conversation because we do get people to write in support that haven't listened to the podcast, haven't read any of our articles on the web or anything like that. They just tried the app, nothing else. And they write it and they go, uh, this part of things works weirdly. I don't like it. It's different. It's not what, you know, what I'm used to. And it's kind of like, you know, we can obviously respond and and give the summarized version of here's why we made this decision. But it's a way more interesting conversation when someone writes in and says, okay, you know, I tried this new feature. I listened to the podcast. I read the memo and I totally see your thinking. Here's why I disagree. Or here's why in my use case. And here's a screenshot of a board, the board being the kind of the main kind of working canvas inside Muse. Here's a screenshot of how I'm using it. I understand all your reasoning. Here's why I disagree. Um, And that's like a super interesting conversation at that point, right? Because now you're, now you're really getting into it. It's not just the surface level thing, just a very fun and rewarding way of, of having a a two-way conversation with, uh, with our, um, with everyone that's using our product or interested in the product.
1: That's fantastic. I think that's fantastic for my listeners to hear that because it's a very creative way to go about that, to go about having that conversation. I think, I think it's a way that gets overlooked. So I'm, I'm, Super jazz that it's working for y'all. So let's switch to team. So how did you build your team, and, and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you?
0: As with the interface, our team approach is also uh, unusual, or unusual in compared to let's say the Silicon Valley venture world that I was used to previously so we're actually only five people right now even though we've been doing this two and a half years we have this partnership model where essentially we wanted to a little bit maybe like an attorney's firm when you think of sort of making partner that kind of concept but basically we wanted to have a higher talent density where everyone's wearing a lot of hats everyone's very entrepreneurial but we keep the team small to avoid I'm going to call it management overhead, but um, you know, speaking as a person who's done a lot of management uh, in various teams over the years, including at at Heroku, at one point I was managing something like a hundred people with you know managers of managers, and there's all this structure and process and all that sort of thing. And of course, you know, people let you do a lot, let you have a big impact, and certainly for that business, that was infrastructure. There's just huge labor demands for sure. Um, but I enjoy the creation and the making and the hands-on stuff a lot more. And so for me, a team that's in the five to 10 range is kind of a, a real sweet spot. And so me and my partners kind of agreed about that when we got started and we said, okay, is there a way we can do this where we can kind of keep the team really small, call it like a one pizza team, <laughs> maybe uh, for as long as we can, maybe not forever. And, you know, if you're successful, you, you do need to scale up. And it turns out that having this kind of partnership model in the small team was a way to attract um, very much the kind of people that we wanted. People who were interested in being on a small team, wearing a lot of hats, owning a big stake in the business, even if they're not a a founder. And in fact, we made the conscious choice to remove founder as a label from our uh, vocabulary. So we all just refer to ourselves as partners. Some of the partners were there right at the start. Some of the partners came later on. Uh, but in the end we try to make it so that everyone's kind of peers and that we don't have this, this special, uh, halo of the people who were, who were there first. So at least so far that's worked pretty well, but it's, it's hard to fully say because we don't, the end is not very big uh, right now. So we don't have a lot of, we could have just gotten lucky with our, with our first few hires.
1: So let's flip to scalability. And, and given you know this is a, a mobile app, it's going to be interesting to see how you, how you approach this. Although, as I say that, uh, I'm kind of opening up uh, avenues and horizons that you might go with it. But did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? Or are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction with
0: Muse? Yeah. So, scale has a different meaning with personal tools. Um, you know, Heroku and being infrastructure scale was almost the whole job by the end, and I actually didn't like, or, or I should say, I prefer being more focused on features and user-facing things and the kind of the building of the the software and its functionality rather than than scaling. So, yeah, making a personal tool. It does have a, a different meaning. Uh, performance is one that's always been a focus, you know, 120 frames a second or bust is, you know, is kind of our motto. But then you do have this thing where because it is this sort of knowledge uh, management tool, and as people use it over time, you know, now that we have customers who've been using it a couple of years, and they may get many gigabytes, maybe tens of gigabytes, maybe hundreds of gigabytes, in some cases, of data that they've amassed over time. It's, it's basically like kind of a spatial file system is one way to think of it. And you've got PDFs and videos and high resolution images and so forth in addition to your ink and text and everything else. And so as those Uh, individual user data sets have gotten big, then we have hit scaling problems and we try to tune for those. But that, that part of things, the performance was from day one and we always try to stay on top of. But the scaling to large data sets is something that we kind of wait until it's getting slow for someone. And we have a couple of, you know, we have our users who are, uh, sort of the most demanding and are the ones who are likely to hit hit slowdowns or hit problems where the yeah, out-of-memory problems or something and they write in and then we, we work hard to address those in the moment. And at least so far that kind of on-demand uh, approach to dealing with data scale has worked for us. But again, I think it's pers- a personal tool rather than like one large aggregate database as you get with kind of web SaaS. It has a whole different structure. We've made basically very good personal relationships with some of the people who are most demanding on the product because they write in, in a way they're very understanding because they're the ones who are likely to write in and say like, hey, I'm getting this slowdown or I'm getting this crash. Often it's like an out of memory thing as it tries to load in some giant PDF or whatever. You have to go back and forth with them and give them some test builds and say, does this fix the problem for you? You know, built really good relationships in a, in a way that people who your early customers who push the envelope on what you can do with the product, in a way they almost feel like they're they're sort of partnering with you on, on making the product good. And then everyone else that comes along later benefits from that. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? Yeah, it'd be hard to boil it down to one thing. I'm I'm very proud of this this business, and I think kind of the team and maybe brand and like small independent business approach is probably my favorite thing. Partially because that feels like a, I guess it is a bit of a reaction to the Silicon Valley hype machine and uh, fever pitch stuff. That it was honestly also part of why I left. San Francisco, much as I love startups and technology and software. And I do think venture funding is this incredible thing for getting new products built in the world. But I also see a lot of the ways it's excesses cause, I don't know, mental health problems for people. And I had my own brushes with that. And so kind of being able to sit down and decide, let's build the kind of company That we want to build that lets us both make a great thing that we think is ambitious and inspiring and has the potential to have a meaningful impact on the world but also allows for life work balance and kind of a a team setting that we enjoy and is um, I don't know just feels like a healthier calmer for me more productive place to be I think that's I think more than the product itself um, that's probably what I'm most proud of Let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. For a personal tool like this, data and the user's data and how you sort of manage that and and certainly preserve it as you continue to evolve the product is really important and also one of the bigger challenges. So we've had many big uh, data migrations over time. Uh, Some of them have, have been a little rocky. One of the ones that I feel kind of more... Uh, let's say embarrassed about is um, we actually did a big data migration of uh, essentially all the ink in the in the app was originally in vector format. So it essentially stored. Uh, actually, you could even see this with the you can do a little Muse bundle export. And it would include the ink as just a transparent PNG. And we were going to this thing that was much more device independent, and preparing for a kind of multi-device syncing and later multi-user collaboration. And it made sense to convert everything to vector ink. So we had to do this essentially big migration. We have we have many customers who have a lot of ink, so this was actually quite a um, quite an involved uh, process. And um, what we ended up doing was there was one. Set or there was one very, very early format of ink that we used on the very earliest beta. And we kind of looked into this. We didn't have good analytics, but we were kind of looking at it and thinking, okay, so this was from the beta app, and then if people migrated over, but that was like a year ago, and there was only like 20 people using it, and how many of those are still really active? We kind of made the judgment call or... It wasn't even a super explicit decision, which was maybe part of the problem, but long and short of it is we decided to basically just not handle that one particular case. And we discovered something like a month after we had run this big migration for all our users is that some of our best customers, who of course were the people that were there from the very early beta, had actually lost some ink on their very earliest boards. And they hadn't noticed right away because these are boards they were not accessing, they were more kind of archived, but then they went back to look at it and they were messed up. Protecting users' data is always job one, and in that particular case, we sort of made a judgment call that we thought was right in the moment, but actually was the worst for our most loyal people. And happily we had written a migration in such a way the data was still on the the disk, basically in the, the sort of the SQLite database that stores all the, the user data and we could do kind of a recovery build that pulled that pulled the sync format out and kind of stuck an image awkwardly into the board. And the, these folks were understanding, so I appreciated that. But that definitely uh, felt like a like a mistake.
1: Sure. That's a hard one, but it sounds like you did it right and you kept the data so you were able to recover.
0: Yeah, happily, I don't think we've we've ever had or, or not any kind of dramatic, full on data loss. And, and partially, this is ha- happily, or I should say, many people on the team, including my partner Mark, who does a lot of the backend engineering, and Julia, who who does more the front end iOS side. They have a lot of experience with data migrations and data migrations gone wrong, and how horrible it feels for everyone involved when you you know either mangle or fully lose your your customer data. So I think we pretty good at taking the precaution steps to to avoid that. But yeah, when you have a rapidly evolving product, you want to make these improvements. Something like the conversion to vector ink is a perfect example. It was a clear win for everyone for performance, for storage size, for features that we could add. But it did mean that we needed to, to do this kind of, I don't want to call it a risky migration. It's just all data migrations have inherent risk. Um, And so, if you're you're moving fast and improving the product regularly, there's there's always going to be stuff like this.
1: So what does the future look like for Muse, the product, and for
0: your team? So right now, Muse is this kind of tool for thought on the iPad. You use it for deep thinking with this kind of spatial canvas where you put images and ink and PDFs and so forth all together, but it's just on the iPad. Um, So the next obvious thing is to do new platforms. So I think we'd like to do a a Mac native app. I think being able to share your boards onto the web. Some of our uh, users have actually already just written their own version of this where you sort of like export a Muse bundle and turn that into a, a static HTML page. Um, so we're working now on, on syncing technology, local-first syncing technology, which uh, you can read about if, if you're interested, but is essentially something that um, makes it so that it's very device-centric. You're not dependent on the cloud. You're not connecting to—you're um, storing all the data locally, but, but you can still sync it between all your devices. So yeah, we'll build the Mac, we'll build the web, we'll do the syncing stuff. And actually the syncing technology leads into the next thing, which is collaboration. So you see these kind of, um, call them collaborative digital whiteboards. Miro is probably the big one. FigJam is a newer one. So we hope to essentially compete with those folks, but with our own unique take with this sort of intimate tool that's really built to be native and fast uh, and have this local first syncing. So that whole vision of of Muse is something I'm personally really excited about. I, I want it, right? So that's, you know, you're ultimately, it's always good to build a product for yourself. And uh, that's that's one that excites me a lot. Yeah. And then on the team side, you know, it's interesting to say we, we knew this partnership model and kind of staying small could work um, up until this point. But once you add more platforms, once you add certainly the syncing, which has this very significant backend infrastructure component, Um, so I think it's pretty clear that we've gone probably about as far as we can, with the team size we have. And so I can imagine adding a few more folks in the coming year, just, just depending on, on how that goes. But then we start to ask questions about, well, can everyone, you know, there's only a hundred percent of the company to go around. So everyone having a big ownership stake, you know, at some point, do you have to have partners and employees and, but I don't really love the two tier thing. I like, um, keeping it sort of peers as much as possible. Uh, but that also connects to just how we make decisions. You, know, you asked, for example, earlier about our roadmap. And we essentially get together for a team summit every two months and just kind of sit around and talk about it and come up with what it should be. And I think we do really well kind of through this consensus-based decision-making, which uh, normally consensus-based you know, can lead you to groupthink or whatever. Uh, but for us, it really works. But yeah, if you take the team to 7 or 8 or 10... Yeah, that probably doesn't work anymore. You need different processes. and um, I would like to see if there's a way we can keep, as I said, what I really am most proud of with this um, with this particular venture, which is which is the team and the style of the small business. but can we scale it up just a little bit, not a ton, but just a little bit? Um, so I'm, I'm, we have a few ideas on that, but I, I think it, it could also be a be a challenge. It's sort of at least for me, it's sort of uncharted territory.
1: Let's switch to you, Adam. So who influences the way that you work? You know, a CEO, CTO, architect, really really any person that you look up to
0: and why? I've read a ton of what I usually call maker biographies. Um, I particularly like the sort of biographies of scientists from previous eras, Charles Darwin or Marie Curie, or maybe an artist like Leonardo da Vinci. I think those have had a lot of influence on me. You know, in modern times, certainly there's these tech CEOs and so forth who do a lot to build companies and cultures and and um, bring a new technology into the world. But I think I would actually probably reach into the research world to answer that question. So Bob Taylor uh, was a kind of research director person who worked first at ARPA back when they were inventing TCP IP, a.k.a. the Internet. And later he went on to work at PARC, where... You may know, you know, basically GUI operating systems, and what you see is what you get. Word processing, and um, many, many other things. Ethernet, many, many other things that are part of what we would consider the modern desktop computer. And Taylor was interesting because he wasn't the creator, he wasn't the the scientist or the researcher or the engineer. He was more of this well-research director, and he would basically find people who were doing interesting work and bring them together and make a good kind of work lab office setting for them. He would get funding uh, from these different sources. Arpa obviously a government. Park was a corporate research lab, um, and find a way to get the money to the people and help them develop um, these breakthrough technologies. And a lot of that was what we might call herding the cats, because these folks who are these very free thinkers are not inclined to any kind of like top-down management or classic, you know, being told what to do by a boss. And in fact, you, you couldn't do that. You need to let them be creative and explore their research paths. But at the same time, they do need some structure and they do need some accountability. And Bob Taylor seemed to have this just remarkable instinct for where to go to be able to work on the future of computing and to pull together really remarkable people, uh, and get them kind of focused around shared projects and in doing so really shaped, uh, the modern computing world that we live in today. Uh, and I, I I really respect that. I think sort of managerial types don't get as much, um, I don't know what the word is. We don't lionize them the way that we do the more the hands-on folks, the designers, the engineers, the architects. Uh, But I, I think Bob Taylor is one who's, who's very worthy of our respect and uh, is a personally inspiring for me.
1: Well, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning,
0: what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? yeah Muse is still early enough that it's probably hard to fully see the, the the mistakes you know once you have the benefit of hindsight five or ten years on that's when that's when you can look back and think you know if we'd done it this way, maybe that would have would have been better. Um, right now, I think I would probably say I wish we had uh, tackled this kind of sync first between platforms, but then the the collaboration a little bit earlier. We really do now live in this multi-device world and as amazing as the iPad is for this kind of thinking environment, you know, sit back in your reading chair and peruse the PDF and mark things up and and that sort of thing. It's, It's really unparalleled for that. But the reality is just no one's computing devices on any one device, even someone who really loves the iPad. And being able to access stuff from your phone and be able to do stuff on your desktop. That's just part of the modern creative professionals computing life. And our motivation to wait on this is we wanted to really nail that iPad experience, which includes the, the, the advanced gestures and making great use of the stylus, things like the tool switcher we talked about earlier, as well as all these media types that we wanted to include, not just the PDFs and the images, but also tweets and videos and so on. And we wanted to really get all that really, really right. And once that was there, this kind of personal, intimate tool that's just for you thinking on your iPad, okay, now we'll expand outward. Um, And I I think that could still work, but as I see Uh, Other tools for thought from, you know, Obsidian to Rome or and obviously Notion is kind of one of the the, the first movers there. But then also these again, these digital whiteboards that are sort of collaborative from the start. Um, Yeah, I hope that uh, trying to start with the personal tool and expand outward to something that's kind of on more platforms and more collaborative that we didn't do that in the wrong order. So we'll we'll see the market. The market will decide for us, I guess.
1: Last question, Adam. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit a few times?
0: Yeah, I do actually find myself giving advice to folks that I'm speaking to that are either at various points in the entrepreneurial Journey, and of course, there's no one size fits all. It depends on where they are and what things they've already figured out and what what problems they're still trying to solve. I guess a pitfall that I think I personally experienced, and then have seen many, many others deal with, uh, which kind of comes back to that Silicon Valley hype machine thing, is getting caught up in status games or comparing yourself too much to your peers. And I think this exists. It certainly, exists in, cel- uh, in the Silicon Valley world. You know, this startup raised around at this valuation, and why aren't we at that level? But it also ex- exists in the bootstrapper indie hacker world, right, where people share here's my MRR growth, you know, p- graph on Twitter, and then you compare yourself to that, and you see you're you're not there. Um, and I experienced this a little bit in Silicon Valley, just that like some of our uh, when I was working on Heroku, uh, for example, I was good friends with some folks who were early at Twitter. And, of course, that was just this incredible uh, rocket ship taking off. Um, and there was other other companies, of course, that were, were doing very well. And so as well as we were doing, it's easy to look at that and think, hmm, we're not quite there. And then, I don't know, there, there's just something about humans that I think we want to benchmark ourselves against whoever we consider to be our peers. And then maybe we want to impress the people that we think are – I'm not even sure what – um, but that's just, that whole thing is just a game that no one wins. And trying to coming back to the advice to give to the this hypothetical up and comer is basically like focus on what you're making and are you proud of it and do you think it will help people in their lives? It will solve problems for an individual, for a business, make the world better in some small way, according to your your view on what constitutes better. And if so, that's great. And focus on that and don't don't worry about who else you think is your peers and how well they're doing or not doing. That's great advice. Well, Adam, thank you for being on the show
1: today. Thank you for telling the creation story of muse. Thanks so much for having me. And this concludes another chapter of code story. Code story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice support the show on patreon.com/codestory for just 5 to 10 bucks a month and when you get a chance leave us a review both things help us out tremendously and thanks again for listening